I thought I would open up with a drum solo this morning, get your attention. No, actually, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would really start us off well. Actually, um, I, I'm going to do an experiment that was conducted by Stanford University. So I want to see what you guys do. I'm gonna, I am going to tap out, not play, but tap out a tune on the drums, just real quick, a simple tune, pretty familiar one to you. And I'm just going to see how many of you can, can figure it out. I'm, I'm pretty confident that I can do this uh, pretty well. I will see how good you guys are. So it's not on me. It's really on you to figure this out, all right? So if you, uh, if you figure it out, don't say anything. I'll, just, I'll ask you in a few minutes if you can do it. All right, so here goes. All right. All right, how many of you think you know what I just played? You guys are musically illiterate, is all I can say. All right, we do have one back there. What do you think I played? Yes! So one, one person in this room knows happy birthday, right? I bet you some, oh, some back there. You got it too. I'm sorry. I did not see that. I want to acknowledge that. It's kind of interesting, though, because uh, statistics really are pretty accurate. The reality is that... Um, in this experiment at Stanford University, uh, they played 120 songs, tapped out like that, and they only guessed them 2.5% times, only 2.5% right. Isn't that amazing? They only got, um, what was it, three songs out of 120 that, that were being tapped out. Now, the tapper thought they were really, really good at that, and they thought that people would probably get it right 50% of the time, but only 2.5%. Now, the difference is that the tapper was hearing the song in their head. I knew exactly what I was playing, right? But the listener had no idea what was being communicated because there was a disconnect, right? But they call that, actually have a term for that, they call that the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge is a barrier that comes between a person and someone that's trying to communicate something with. And our little experiment proved that to be perfectly correct. Now, I share that not because we're going to talk about music and not because I'm going to start playing drums. I flirted with the banjo a few years ago, you know, and I think I'm out of the music industry pretty, pretty good. But I share that with you because that curse of knowledge is a real problem and disconnect when it comes to us sharing our faith today. Now, we're in a series we began last week called Sent, and last week we talked about how Jesus was sent by God to this earth, and Jesus lived a sent life that he came on a search and rescue mission to try to find us because the need was so great, because everyone basically is lost. And Jesus was sent by God to come down and help rescue us. And we concluded by observing that not only did Jesus send a, a, a live a sent life, but that you and I are called to be sent ourselves. In fact, his last words, some of the last words Jesus gave were, as I am sent, so I am sending you. But we also talked about the fact that even though we know that about Jesus' life and we, we know of the Great Commission, the last word Jesus said, go and make disciples, we know that many of us do not acknowledge that we're to be sent. We don't get that. We instead feel, our, feel like we're recipients instead of participants in this whole process. And in fact, we don't even realize that there's a reason to be sent. And I think that's where the curse of knowledge actually comes in the clearest. Because we tend to believe that Christianity either isn't that important or 
that everyone knows what we know, or that they are good with God, or they just aren't interested. And in that list of things, the reality is that none of these things are really true. That every one of them are just kind of a concept that we have today, and a way we look at the world around us, and that we aren't communicating the gospel very well. And when we think about missions, we think about mission field being some other country, usually less developed than us, not nearly as advanced technologically or educationally, that they just don't know. And if we could just tell them, it would be great. But the reality is that America is currently one of the greatest mission fields in the world. One of the greatest mission fields in the world, depending on how people respond to the gospel. Recently, a survey was done by the American Religious Identification Survey, and they showed that mainline denominations were losing ground rapidly. We probably, most of us knew that. But they also found that few churches were actually growing. They just also discovered that people attend church less and less, less now than ever before. And several other disturbing trends were revealed in this survey, but the most alarming stat was a dramatic increase in the category of people known as nuns. Now, I'm not talking about like N-U-N, nuns, like Catholic sisters. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people uh, who call themselves a N-O-N-E, nun. And this is how people responded when they were asked about their faith and religion and spirituality. When they were asked, they said, none. And so there's a huge increase in the people who would reply in that way. Those with no religion uh, were Americans at 23 to 34%. Up to 34%, a third of Americans would say they have no affiliation at all. Evangelicals, what we might call ourselves, were 22%. Catholicism and mainline denominations, again, are on the decline. But what's interesting and sad is that the nuns are the only growing religious slash non-religious trend in the nation. That's the largest growing group of people spiritually. And a summary of that is that America, which is supposed to be a Christian nation, is now become a very clear mission field. Now, what does that mean for us today? And by the way, we're not just talking about people in big cities and, and, you know, urban areas. We're talking about people all over the nation, including right here in central Kentucky in Versailles. So what does that mean to us? What does that mean to us? I think it means that we have to own that. We have to embrace that. We have to acknowledge it, and we have to say, what does God want to do about it? And it might, no, it not might, it definitely involves us. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 10. Everyone then who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Here's the simple facts I think Paul says here. They're very simple. People are lost. Everyone's lost. Only those who call on the Lord will be saved. People can't call on the Lord if they don't believe in him. People can't believe unless they hear about him. People will not hear unless someone tells them, and we won't tell them unless we realize that we are sent to do so. The Bible says the gospel is the good news, but good news isn't really good news if you never hear it, and you never get a chance to respond to it. Only to those who hear it can it be good news. 
But you know what? It kind of goes back to the curse of knowledge I was talking a few moments ago because that's where it all breaks down. We think they know what we know. We really do. We assume the tune that we're playing and we're living, they already know that. That people know all about Jesus and they don't know about Jesus. And we don't feel any urgency to go and tell them what we know because of the curse of knowledge. And in fact, today, I think we rarely even think about it. I don't believe that we say, I'm not going to go do that. I just don't think we ever think about going and doing that. I was reading an article uh, in the Atlantic Monthly, and the author was describing his own uh, spiritual condition. And he probably would uh, identify himself as a nun in that group. But he said that he used to be an atheist. He would proudly proclaim he was an atheist. But then he realized one day that he probably wasn't an atheist as much as he was an apathist. An apathist. He, he just didn't really care. He hadn't even thought or cared about God for years and years. And he said what was strange, though, was that he, he knew he had several friends who seemingly had this active relationship with God, but they showed no signs of caring about the fact that he was an unrepentantly atheistic Jewish homosexual. He said they don't seem to acknowledge or care about that. They personified the more important part of atheism, uh, he said, the part that doesn't care what other people think about God. When I read that, I thought, you know what? We would probably all have to acknowledge that we're apatheistic, if that's a word, about God because we don't think about people and we don't think or care sometimes what they think about God. We'd probably have to put ourselves in that place. We just don't think about it. And I think that runs true to other statistics. According to various research and surveys, only 2% of Christians actively share their faith with others. Only 2%. And many of us in the room, in fact, 98% of us in the room would probably have to say, well, that's, that's probably true. But guys, what would happen if we were to double that number? What, what if 4%? What if A? What if 20%? What if 50%? What if 75%? What if 100% of Christians actively shared their faith with others? What difference do you think it would make? I think that would accomplish the mission that Jesus has sent us for to win the world to Christ, or at least make a big dent in it, wouldn't it? And we ought to do that. We ought to do that for a lot of reasons. Let me give you a few I was thinking about. One of them is that we should be so excited about our own salvation that it should just bubble out of us. We really should never have a mundane conversation with someone that Jesus doesn't come up if we really value our own salvation and what we have. Not only that, sharing with other people is the only loving thing to do. If you actually care about people, why would you not share with them about Jesus? Not only that, but sharing brings glory to God. Every time that we just talk about God and talk about Jesus, it brings glory to Him. Uh, not only that, but sharing puts jewels in our own crown. We're going to be blessed, and, and God's going to smile upon us when we share Jesus with others. And there's a lot of other reasons. Some are selfish and some may not be. But the most compelling reason to share Jesus is a four-letter word, and that is the reality of hell, which you don't hear a lot about these days, do you? You don't hear a lot about hell. It's kind of fallen on hard times. Nobody wants to talk about hell anymore. But you know what? The Bible talks about hell. So maybe in this process of the curse of knowledge conversation and what we know and what we think other people know, we ought to talk about that because Jesus did a lot. Let's going to read from Luke chapter 16. 
Jesus told this story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I mean, that's a sobering story, isn't it? But Jesus told it very clearly. But there are some takeaways I think we have to kind of get from this to get the, the real picture very simple. First of all is this, everybody dies. Everybody dies. In this story, everybody dies. The rich man was full of life. We don't even know he was an old man. doesn't say he was an old rich man. It says he just was a rich man. He had a great life. He was wealthy. He had purple and fine linen, which is a sign of wealth in that day. He had a great estate, a big house, I'm sure. He had a big family. He had five brothers. No doubt he even had his own wife and children. And I would almost guarantee you that dying was the last thing on his mind. He never thought about dying. Most of us don't consider that unless we're forced to. I really doubt anyone discussed the fact with him that he could possibly die. Probably was, rarely came up in a conversation. But then he died. Unexpectedly and far too soon, I'm sure. And I'm sure that's how everybody uh, dies today, you know. There are some people that die, and we expect it, we see it coming, but in reality, many people die, and they have no idea up to almost the moment. I'm told that there are 300,000 people in our world every day who die. 300,000 people who die, and most of them do not expect to die. Let me ask you this. What are the odds do you think that you're going to die? 100%. You're going to die. We're all going to die. We hope it's a long time from now, but everybody dies, you know? And the same thing is true with all your family and friends. Understand that. They're going to die as well. In fact, death is the only thing sure about life. The only thing sure. I used to hear that death and taxes, but you don't even have to pay your taxes. You can go to jail or be fine, but you're going to die no matter what. Everybody dies. Here's the second takeaway is the reality of hell. You know what? People don't believe in hell, but Jesus believed in hell. And he said that when you die, you either go to heaven or to hell. Now, what I've noticed today is that almost everybody believes in heaven. People talk about how great heaven's going to be, but very few people really want to talk about or maybe even believe in hell. And the reason I believe is that we don't want to think about it, let alone believe in it. A survey said that 74% of people believe in hell, where only 54% excuse me, believe in heaven, only 54% believe in hell. So there's a 20-point difference there. How can you believe in one and not the other when the Bible clearly speaks of both of them? 
But if you don't think people are in spiritual trouble, then you probably don't believe in hell. And if you don't believe in hell, then you probably don't believe people go there. And so to you, there's no urgency to tell them how to avoid it. I mean, it makes lots of sense, right? Lots of sense. That's why we don't talk about it a lot. We prefer not to think about it. But according to the story that Jesus told, I believe is truth, immediately after our death, the fate of our eternity is sealed and judgment is then set into motion, both for the righteous and also for the unrighteous. In the story Jesus told, the beggar, Lazarus, was in paradise, which is symbolic of heaven, and he was by Abraham's side, and Abraham was comforting him, no doubt feeding him, because that had been an issue in his earthly life. On the other hand, the rich man was in Hades, the place of the wicked dead, awaiting final judgment. And the pain and separation that comes from dying apart from God was already set in motion in his life. The reward on one hand, the punishment on the other was already happening. And there was no way that Lazarus would or could go to Hades, nor there was no way that the rich man could get out of Hades into paradise. Abraham says there's a great canyon or a chasm set in between those two. And so what he's saying is the cross, the paths never cross. There, there's not a second chance. There's no do-over. Eternity is sealed at the moment of death. That's why death is such a crucial point in everyone's life. So their eternal destinies were set, but they also tell us a lot about the lives that they lived. Lazarus was poor, but he was godly. He didn't get to heaven because he was poor, but he was a godly man. In fact, Lazarus probably thought of himself as blessed. Now, we talked about blessed, and we said that blessed really isn't all about having everything. That blessed is being made holy, being fully satisfied. And, and Lazarus had little, if anything, on the earth, but he was blessed in his mind. And he probably even thought he was blessed, even though he had to beg at the rich man's gate for food. He ate the scraps that fell off the table and were thrown away. And he was in heaven, now being comforted by Abraham himself, and having all the things that he had never had on the earth, even more, greater things. On the other hand, the rich man, who had had all the good things in life, now had nothing but suffering. Suffering to the point that the only thought he asked for was for a drop of water to cool his tongue in the agony of fire. Now, he didn't ask for a, a cooler to be dumped over him to cool him off. He didn't ask for even a bottle of, of water he said, if I could have a drop of water, that would, be, that would be amazing if you would send Lazarus to do that. You know, what's interesting is there's no indication in the story that the rich man was a bad man. There really is. It doesn't say he was an evil rich man. He didn't seem to have a grave sin or a huge problem. He probably was a good man. I mean, after all, he did let Lazarus eat his garbage, and that day probably he was thought of as a good guy. He cares for the poor. You know, he let him, let, let Lazarus hang out and eat what nobody else wanted. And more than likely got all these compliments and platitudes from his rich family and friends. And they probably said, like we often hear, or maybe even say, he's in a much better place now. Have you ever heard people say that? I've heard people say that in a funeral with an obviously godless person. And a part of me just wants to scream and say, please don't say that. I, I wouldn't make that kind of suggestion because in this case, he definitely wasn't in a better place. And you know, I look at this guy and I don't know anything about him, but he may have been a good guy. But you know what? Good does not get you to heaven. Being good is not going to get you there. 
And there's a lot of reasons why, but one of the reasons is that your standard of good and God's standard of good are different. Because the Bible says there is no one good, there's no one righteous except one. So none of us are good, we're all struck out right there. We get to heaven not because we are good, but because we know and have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is the only way to heaven. That's what gets us into God's house. Because God has a house, and he's preparing a place for those who are his family, but they would be the only ones that get there. Let me give you an example. If you were to come to my house and knock on my door, and I don't know you, you might say, hey, can I come in and live with you? Now, you, even if I know you, and you come to my house and want to live with me, you better have a really good reason, all right? <laughs> but, if, but if you knock on my door, and I don't even know who you are, and you say, hey, can I come in and live with you? I'm going to go, No. <laughs> But, but I'm a good person. I don't care how good you are. If I don't know you, you're not going to come live in my house with me, right? Doesn't, goodness has nothing to do with that. It's a relationship that it's going to require. So whenever you live your life with no respect for God or God's word and no relationship with him, and then you die and you demand to live in God's house, I think Jesus said what, what God would say, sorry, I never knew you. And you know what? He, he says those words to people who claimed to believe in him. So can you believe in God and God not know you? Absolutely. Most people believe there is a God. But do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which is the only way? Here's another platitude along that line that people say. Say, you know, we don't believe the same thing, but all roads lead to heaven. Really? Do you know of anywhere else in the world that every road leads to? Is there anywhere that every road leads? I don't know of anywhere like that. If I say, hey, if you want to come to my house, take High Street out of town and just keep going straight, and you go, nope, I think I'm going to take Midway Road. You're never going to get to my house. (laughs) Unless you go around the world, I don't think you can do that. You're never going to get there. And when God says the only way to my house is through Jesus And you think you're going to get there some other way, especially with your own goodness? I'm sorry, it's not going to happen ever. And one day he's going to say, I don't know who you are. You know, in the story that Jesus told about this rich man, probably nobody ever even tried to talk to the rich man about how to get to heaven or how to give him directions or God or death or heaven or hell or anything else. Why? Because he seemed to know where he was going. He seemed to have it all together. He seemed to have, he had wealth and he had power, and he had friends, and he was popular, and seemingly not even Lazarus ever took the time, or maybe he never listened to what he had to say. But anyway, he was the last person on earth that many of us would ever think to reaching out to, because he didn't look like he was in trouble. And how many people do we know around us every day who seem like they have it all together? They know exactly where they're going, but they have no idea. They have no idea. You know, the rich man in this story... He never had to worry or want for anything in his life. But now he finds himself in a place of suffering in what Jesus called Hades. And suddenly, amazing, there was this remarkable change in his spirit, in his attitude, his priorities, and the heart of, of this man. In fact, when he realized where he was, when he realized that hell was real and horrible, and there was no way out, suddenly, this man who never thought about God, suddenly had amazing interest in missionary work. Suddenly, he was concerned, not just about himself, that was all past. 
It was everybody else. In fact, there was nothing more important for him than those people that he loved. He thought about his family, which tells us in hell people will have regret. No doubt he had regret, but he thinks immediately about the people that he left behind. He didn't care about himself. It was too late. But he sure believed in hell. He didn't want anybody else to be able to experience hell with him. And he knew that someone had to go and tell them. So now he's wanting to send someone back to his family. Send Lazarus. If I can't go back to my family, I've got five brothers. Let him go and warn them. I do not want them to come to this place of torment. Never before would it have occurred to him to even think about turning to God. But now suddenly there was an urgency. He knew he couldn't go. And he wanted Lazarus to go. And Lazarus was going, I'm not going. I'm not going back there at all. There will be a time when we will all recognize the mistakes we made and the failures we made to share with other people because there will be a lot of people in hell. And guys, I think it kind of comes down to this, this idea of personal responsibility and the fact that a lot of us don't have it for the lost. We don't think the need is real. We don't think there's a hell. We don't think that people are in trouble. And we don't think it's our responsibility. We do not take personal responsibility. And our culture has been going that way for a long time. I remember this story, not when it happened, because I was only four years old, but I remember it being told many times, the story that occurred in 1964 uh, to a lady named Kitty Genovese. I don't know if you ever heard this story or not, but it, it tells so much about human nature. Kitty lived in an area in Queens, and in her neighborhood, she was attacked. An attacker set upon her and chased her through the streets and stabbed her, and the battle went on for 30 minutes. This this attacker chased her and eventually killed her. She was stabbed to death while 38 of her neighbors watched from their windows, 38. And not a single one of them opened the door or the window to yell at the guy to step in to intervene. Nobody did anything, and you might well say, well, sure, they called the cops, but not even one of them called the police. 38 people, and they all ignored her. And you might say, well, now, that was a long time ago. It was 50 years ago. And that was, you know, probably in New York and an isolated event. No, it's so common that they call it the bystander problem. Simply put, the bystander problem is that it doesn't matter how serious a crisis is. It doesn't even matter the degree to which someone is in trouble and trying to get help. What matters really is how many witnesses there are to the event. The more witnesses there are, the less people tend to respond. Now, we've probably all done this to a lesser extent ourselves because we assume that somebody will respond to the need. We assume that it really isn't a big deal because if it were, someone would be doing something, right? And if nobody is, then evidently there's no problem. And I think that really is an issue when it comes to us sharing our faith today. We don't think about hell, so we don't think about people being lost. So we don't have a sense of urgency. They seem like they're doing fine. They obviously know everything we do. And if they choose not to, then that's their choice, right? And meanwhile, people are dying. Many, if not most, are headed to eternity with no hope. So maybe our problem is that we don't really believe in hell. Because if we did, I think there would be three things that would happen. First of all, I think we would appreciate our own salvation more. And if nothing more today, please appreciate your relationship with Christ that's going to get you to heaven someday. And and think about Lazarus. Maybe life is horrible here and, and, you know, and life will be so much better there. Value that. But secondly, it would make us walk in the fear of the Lord. I don't want 
to lose my salvation. I'm not saying it's dangling out there all the time. I'm just saying I want to keep that relationship right. I want to be in connection with him so he recognizes me when I come to his door and say, hey, can I come in? But then the third thing I think it would do, it would cause us to have a passion for winning lost people. It would cause us to have a passion for winning lost people. Now, I know today that I'm talking to a lot of people in a lot of different places and spiritually. And so if you're here today and you, you, and, uh, you don't know Jesus, I would pray that I, I believe God brought you here today. And I would say that before you leave, you need to talk to someone about your relationship with Christ. Or if you just believe in God, but you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ and come to the Father through the Son, that's a decision to make today, to be right with Him. Why? Because everybody dies and because hell is real. And this is not condemning, it's just, this is what Jesus said. That's kind of our standard of truth. And so I believe what He says, so it's not a threat or maybe it should be a warning. But if you don't know Jesus, you need to talk today before you leave and make a decision. I'd be glad to talk to you. But I hope you understand that you're loved by God, you're loved by us, and that's why we do everything we do so that we can help move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. That's important. But if you are here and you're a follower of Christ, which is most of us, let me ask you a question. Do you realize that some of the people around you that you care for, maybe it's a family or a friend, a coworker, or a neighbor, someone, do you realize that they're in trouble? Do you acknowledge that? Do you realize that it's your responsibility to help them? I don't know them. I don't know what their problem is, but I suspect that you, and the reason that you know them is that God has sent you to them to tell them about Jesus. Would it be, on God's, be, be beyond understanding of God to say that God put you in their life, and maybe in a very unusual way, for you to tell them about Jesus so that they might be saved or at least have a chance to decide for themselves? Guys, our generation of Christians is responsible for our generation of non-Christians. And one day we're going to stand before God and give an account of our personal lives in relation also to how and whether we cared about and did anything about lost people around us. Because the urgency is real. It is true. Everybody dies. Hell is real. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to respond? You know, I love this story. It, it just illustrates it so well, even com, com, from, uh, coming, a, coming from a non-believer. But in 1854, there was a well-known criminal named Charlie Peace in London, England, was, was being hung, was about to be hung. They had him on the gallows. And like always, they would bring in a priest, an Anglican priest, came in to read the, from the prayer book before he was hung. And so he stood behind Charlie Peace, and he said these words from the prayer book, those who die without Christ experience hell which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. It was a pretty simple statement that he probably had read many times, but when he read that, suddenly Charlie Peace froze in his tracks. And he turned to the priest and shouted, do you believe that? And the priest had never had anybody challenge him about this, never had anybody ask him, but he said, well, I, I guess I do. I suppose I do. And here's what Charlie Peace said. He said, well, I don't. But if I did, I would get down on my hands and knees and I would crawl all over Great Britain, even if it were paved with broken glass, if I could rescue one person from what you just told me. From a lost person who was dying, who didn't believe it. But if I did, I would pull out the stops to tell people because of the urgency. 
Why don't we get that, guys? I don't know why we don't get it. Dead men in hell, they sure get it, don't they? But you know what? It's too late. It is too late. Why can't living Christians on their way to heaven, why can't we understand that? Guys, I hope that this touches your heart and it moves you to an awareness, but also of compassion for people who don't know the Lord. Not that we're judging people. It's not our place to judge. We can have a conversation with people, and if people don't want to hear what we have to say, that's fine. But we can say it. And we need to do that. We need to be honest about this, guys. This has really been a burden on my heart. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm, not, I'm not as, I don't share as much as I've, I know I should. I want this to convict me. If you go away and it doesn't touch you at all, that's okay. It's, 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 I need this. But every one of us need this. And I think we need to be accountable and acknowledge that. Guys, next Sunday night, we're going to be having a prayer service, our Sunday night prayer service. And this is going to be the topic of it. And if this is on your heart, like it's on mine, I'm going to ask you to be there. I'm going to ask you to be there, to be ready to pray, to, to, to acknowledge it, to admit it, to share with one another, to pray for people that we care about. If this is on your heart like it is mine, I'll, I'll remind you next week, but let's make it a point to be there. Let's do something so that people don't end up in hell where they're going to be without Jesus. You know, we're so blessed that we have a Lord who gave us away, and right now we're going to celebrate that time in a time of communion, and Jesus came and he died so that we could be freed, we could escape this natural punishment coming to everyone for our sins. And we should be grateful for that. This morning, as we respond, I pray that you have a heart of gratitude for what Jesus has saved us from, and that you are right with him personally, and that you have a deeper heart of compassion for those who are not. We'll take the piece of bread, the cup of juice, to symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus that is shared, was shared and broken for us. In doing so, we will acknowledge him, his love, and his graciousness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning, and Lord, uh, the topic has been serious, but God, we need these times. We need times of celebration, but we need sober reminders of the, the risk and the reality of hell. God, partly it reminds us of how much you love us and that you would do anything to save us from that. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that those of us who are in Christ would never take our faith for granted, but we would always be grateful for what you have done. God, we would never see ourselves as better than others, but we would see ourselves as redeemed and privileged to know Jesus. And that, God, then we would in turn have hearts of compassion and honesty and boldness to share our faith with others who do not have that promise and that, 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 that security. Father, I pray you'll bless this meal, this bread and this cup, Lord, and as we take, they would be reminders to us of Christ's love. I pray in his name. Amen.